John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43, it says, Now after two days he departed from there and he went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. Many years ago, there was a group of so-called scholars who created a forum, which they called the Jesus Seminar. The scholars included Robert W. Funk and Roy W. Hoover and others, and they wrote, and I quote, The Jesus of the Gospels is an imaginative theological construct into which has been woven traces of that enigmatic sage from Nazareth, Traces that cry out for recognition and liberation from the firm grip of those whose faith overpowered their memories. The search for the authentic Jesus is a search for the forgotten Jesus, unquote. According to them, who is the forgotten Jesus? According to them, he is the Jesus who did not die for sins. He is the Jesus who didn't perform miracles. He is the Jesus who didn't rise from the dead. The Jesus Seminar calls him the forgotten Jesus, but they might just as well have called him the fraudulent Jesus. Others suggest Christianity suppressed alternative gospels that portray Jesus in a more accurate way. Dan Brown became famous writing a book called The Da Vinci Code, which was later made into a movie. And in that movie, it suggests that the fraud wasn't perpetrated by Jesus, but rather by the well-meaning disciples of Jesus. If the ministry and the message of Jesus is a hoax, either started by Jesus or as a result of his disciples, the net result is millions of people are at best misguided, at worst deceived. But if not, then the Jesus Seminar and Dan Brown join a company of skeptics and unbelievers who have both denied Jesus and dishonored the historical Jesus. In a movie called A Few Good Men, there's a character played by Tom Cruise, and he makes the statement, it doesn't matter what I believe. It only matters what I can prove. It's interesting, so many people believe so many things about Jesus, but few are willing to offer proof. Did the gospel writers get it right? When we read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, does it give us an accurate, historical, factual account of the life, the words, the work, the miracles, the ministry of Jesus? Is the historical Jesus lost in a fog, in a fiction? The smoke of wishful thinking, of fanaticism, blinding any real attempt to see the real Jesus for who he really is. Did the skeptical scholars did it right? Did we reinvent Jesus? Paul, writing 
a decade, decades later in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, said this. He wrote, and I quote, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, there are those people who believe in a Jesus who lets them continue in their sin, lets them resist Him, lets them rebel, lets them watch whatever they want to watch, do whatever they want to do. Theirs is a non-judgmental Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised that in every generation there's a deliberate, conscious effort to discredit the Bible and dishonor the Lord rather than believe His message they reinvented Jesus, a Jesus who is more to their own liking, more unsuitable to their own unbelief in popular culture and film and media. Jesus is de- de- depicted as sometimes a crazed, delusional rabbi. Sadly, some suggest before the invention and distribution of antipsychotic medication, Jesus heard voices, but that if he just had a little Prozac or a little ambient. He would sleep through the night. Some more charitable see Jesus as a great thinker, as a philosopher and a reformer. Some world religions have Jesus as an avatar, the incarnation of Krishna like Hinduism, some an angelic being like Jehovah's Witnesses, or the spirit son of Elohim, a glorified man in yonder heavens like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Some believe Jesus to be a great prophet in a long line of prophets. The list would include Baha'i and Islam. Everyone claims their Jesus is the real Jesus. Charlotte Allen in The Human Christ wrote, quote, The liberal searchers found a liberal Jesus. The deists found a deist. The romantics are romantic. The existentialists an existentialist. And the liberationists found a Jesus who embraces class struggle. Unfortunately, the only people left out, of course, were the atheists because even they can't squeeze the meaning to mean that Jesus was an atheist. Jesus can't be what he never was. But I want to suggest to you that Jesus will always be what he ever was. Lord, Savior, Redeemer, Forgiver, Reconciler, Healer. When we present a Jesus that in any way denies or denigrates or degrades or diminishes his true identity, his true mission. We dishonor him. And many people who would never, ever open their Bible and misrepresent his identity or his mission or his message will sometimes dishonor him with the things that they think, the words that they speak, the things that they watch the things that they do. Many people in the world feel an absolute freedom to distort and confuse and disregard the repeated testimony of God in the Bible concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. So what is the truth about Jesus? What are some of the evidences of true biblical faith? Well, for one, we honor Him, and two, we receive Him 
Look again at the scene in the setting for faith in verse 43. It says, now after two days he departed from there and he went to Galilee. For those of you who have been following along, Jesus had spent the last two days in Samaria. We find that in chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. You remember the story. Jesus leaves the Galilee. He must needs go to Samaria. He sits at Jacob's well. He meets a woman. And in the meeting of that woman, he reveals something about himself, that he is God's Messiah, that he was sent by by God. You'll remember in John chapter 1 how John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You'll remember in chapter 2 how he turns water into wine and he cleanses the temple. In chapter 3, he meets with Nicodemus, quoting the most famous quote in all of the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. He sits down with the woman. He reveals his identity and mission. In the, at the end of verse 42, look what it says. Now we believe we have heard him ourselves. And many more believed because of his own word. The people didn't just hear the testimony of the Samaritan woman, but now they heard the testimony of Jesus coming from his own mouth. Don't you think that the best source of information about Jesus comes from his own mouth? By the way, if I wanted to know about you, if someone were to ask me about you, about what you think, about what you believe, about what you like, about what you dislike, don't you think that the best person for me to ask is you? If I wanted to know what you're really, really like, should I ask you? Or should I ask your husband or your wife? Well, guess what? Probably the truth about Jesus, the evidence for Jesus, the identity of Jesus lies in what he says about himself and about what those who are closest to him say about him. Why did Jesus leave this successful revival taking place in Samaria to go to a place where he had encountered a chilly reception. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, we learn that Jesus is resisted and rejected in his own land. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, "...the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death... Light has dawned. Jesus goes to the Galilee. And you have to understand something. The Galilee was far from Jerusalem, the place of worship. And the Galilee was constantly being overrun by Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. Yet the prophet Isaiah declared that God's Messiah would go there and that God's Messiah would shine brightly 700 years before the Messiah ever showed up. John Corson rightly points out the scripture was not simply predictive for Jesus, but also directive for his ministry. In other words, the scripture didn't simply predict the ministry of Jesus, but it also provided direction for the ministry of Jesus. The scriptures were written about him. The scriptures were fulfilled by him. 
and the scriptures directed him. I think that that's interesting. The scriptures predict Jesus, the scriptures reveal Jesus, and then the scriptures provided direction, and the scriptures can provide direction to you, if you're willing to look at them, as the best source of life the best source of ministry, the best source for the work of Jesus. Now, remember what I told you last week, the land of the New Testament, the land that we call the Holy Land or, the, or, or, or Israel was divided into three main geographical regions. To the north, there was the Galilee. In the middle, there was Samaria. To the south, there was Judea. What's interesting In the Roman world, Palestine was the remote outpost on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire and the Romans lumped Syria and Palestine together as a province. So the region of the Galilee was the region that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. And the Lord had prepared this region not only to be a crossroads of culture, but the place where Jesus would call home. As a matter of fact, Paul gives us a clue in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The Galilee had experienced an influx of people from all over the ancient world. The world's leading roads and trade routes went right through its border. As a matter of fact, if you could imagine a map in your mind, east and west, north and south, the eastern world being the Roman and the Greek empire, excuse me, the western world being the Roman and the Greek empire, the eastern world being the Parthian, the Babylonian empires. To the north was Syria, to the south was Egypt. And so in your mind, if you can imagine making a cross on the globe and right in the middle of the cross, that's where Jesus called his home. It's the crossroads of culture. As a matter of fact, the world's leading roads and trade routes went through its porters, and in the ancient world, the Galilee had a considerable population of Samaritans, Phoenicians, Syrians. It was a a place that had fertile land coupled with a strategic location just seven miles from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. There was a Roman outpost called Sepphoris. As a matter of fact, if you go back in history, there was an ancient writer named Josephus who was the commanding general of the armies of Israel when they rebelled against Rome and he set up his headquarter in the northern part in the Galilee. And according to Josephus, there were over 200 cities in the Galilee with a population of 15,000 or more people. This meant that there were literally multitudes for Jesus to reach. And we would consider the Galilee to have been a place where there was a lot of cultural diversity, fresh ideas. You would have found liberals and conservatives, progressives and independents. But in John chapter 1, we discover that Jesus went into his own and his own received him not. You see, the first evidence for faith, the first evidence for historical biblical faith is respect and reverence for Jesus. Look at verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own 
country. When we first read the passage, we might be left with the impression that it seems a little out of place. So what are you talking about? What's meant by his own country? Is he talking about the Galilee? Is he talking about Israel? What is he talking about? Well, guess what? Earlier, Jesus had had a very bad hometown experience. His neighbors in Nazareth had rejected him and even attempted to kill him. In Luke chapter 4, verse 24, it says, Then he said, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And then in Luke chapter 4, verses 28 and 29, it says, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, what did they hear? The message of Jesus, that he is the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose, that he is God's messenger and God's prophet. And because he's God's messenger and God's prophet, he has come so that people could understand their circumstances. But again, in Luke 4, 28, it says, so they all came, they heard these things, and they were filled with joy, knowing that the promises of God had finally come true. No, it says they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Does that sound like a very warm welcome to you? Jesus, shut up. Stop talking to us. Who do you think you are? God's Messiah? Uh, Yeah. And they pushed him, and they shoved him. They resisted him, then they rejected him. And by the way, Jesus wasn't the first prophet to be rejected by those closest to him. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll remember that Jacob had several sons, and among those sons he had a son named Joseph, and Joseph had dreams. And in those dreams he had a picture of the sun and the moon and sheaves bowing down to him. And the way that the brother and the mother and the father interpreted the dream, we're going to bow down to you? And they hated him and they resisted him and then they rejected him. And finally the brothers got up enough courage to take him into the wilderness and they slew an animal and they dipped his garment in blood and they threw him into a pit and they sold him into slavery. And Joseph, you know the story is thrown into jail. He spends years in jails. God releases him. He rises up to be the second in command in Pharaoh's country. And by his wisdom and plan, God would use Joseph to save his father, save his mother, and save his brothers from annihilation and extinction. David was despised by his older brother. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 28, that the sweet psalmist of Israel, the one who slew a lion with his bare hands and and a bear with his bare hands, went out to fight against a giant. And, And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 28, it says, Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you have come to see this battle. You know what he's saying? You're a punk kid. You've left your responsibilities because you're lazy and stupid and you've come here because mom and dad won't let you watch R-rated movies. 
You just want to come here and see all the blood and the guts and the gore for yourself. Jeremiah was despised and rejected in the hometown of Anathoth. In Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 21, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand, unquote. In other words, Jeremiah, shut up. Stop talking about God. Stop prophesying about God. Stop giving us messages from God or else we're going to kill you. Paul wasn't honored by his countrymen in Acts chapter 9. And certainly Jesus was rejected in his own hometown. The testimony of Jesus that a prophet is without honor in his own country isn't just a a historical or a theological nicety. He isn't just giving us a summation of what the Bible had taught. It comes with sorrow and heartache and pain. Because the people Jesus grew up with, the people that Jesus played with, the people that he loved and who loved him did not believe in him and they didn't believe in his mission and they didn't believe in his ministry. You've all heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. The New Testament portrait of Jesus includes a person who's misunderstood and is rejected. Perhaps when you became a Christian, you met with that kind of resistance and rejection, perhaps even hostility. Maybe when you became a a, a Jesus person, when you accepted Christ into your life and you began to talk with your mother and you began to talk with your father and you began to talk with your brothers and you began to talk with your sisters and they say, we know you, you grew up with us. We know what you're really like. Imagine you say to your mother, well, you know, God loves you and Jesus loves you. I changed your diapers. How do you expect for me to believe that you're going to lead me into all spiritual truth? I suspect Jesus was preparing his own disciples for the inevitable. Following Jesus will cost you. The price may include rejection by the people you love most. So what does it mean to have faith? It has to mean in part to honor Jesus. And I want you to note part of the point that's being made here. The people of Nazareth do not honor Jesus. The people of the Galilee will honor Jesus... But many religions say they honor or respect Jesus. The word honor in the Greek language is the Greek word temin. It means to value, to esteem, to respect. By the way, in the ancient world, depending on the context, the word implied superior standing, exaltation, distinction, homage, reverence, and even worship when the honor extends to deity, when we're talking about God. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul, writing from a Roman prison, will write and he'll say, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those of the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that 
Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Anything less than the real honor is dishonor. The word honor, by the way, could also mean a price paid or payment received of credit due of great consideration based on value. The Bible says that you've been purchased with a great price, not not with the blood of bulls or goats or animals, but God sent his son to die for you. The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in consideration in that context, Jesus is to be honored with our lives. And true honor is willing to pay the price due to the Lord. No wonder, again, Paul will write in Romans chapter 12 that you're to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The idea is that, that that's the bare minimum. The Bible describes Jesus as deserving of all honor, all praise, all glory. But there are those who do not want to give him all honor, all praise, all glory. Because to do so would mean that they don't honor themselves or praise themselves or glorify themselves. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes earlier, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That text means so much, but minimum, it means that Jesus is the one who is full of grace, that it is Jesus who is the one who is full of truth. He is the source of truth. Honoring Jesus gives us clear evidence of biblical faith. Dishonoring Jesus is clear evidence of a lack of biblical faith. So the person who says, we respect Jesus, we honor Jesus, your friends and family who talk about Jesus, when you hear your favorite movie star go get an award and say, I... All the honor goes to Jesus. But they live their lives quite apart from Jesus. It's okay for you to ask, which Jesus are you talking about? Which which Jesus is the Jesus that you believe in? Well, I believe in the Jesus who gives me the freedom to act any way I want to act, say whatever I want to say, do whatever I want to do with whomever I want to do it. That's the Jesus that I believe in. Really? The second evidence for faith is acceptance and appreciation of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 45. So when he came to the Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the the feast. The opposite of acceptance is snubbing and rejection. Did Jesus expect and receive a warm welcome in the Galilee? Or did Jesus get the cold shoulder? Well, look what it says. So when he came to the Galilee, the Galileans received him. 
Based on what? Having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem. When did he do that? In chapter 2. Remember, after turning the water into wine, he goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He overturns the money changers' tables. He says that that the house of the Lord will be a house of prayer. And he reminds them that God has to not be misrepresented to a watching world. Did the Galileans receive Jesus as Lord? Probably not. Did they receive him as a miracle-working rabbi, this up-and-coming teacher? Probably. Were they, as John MacArthur suggests, quote, curiosity seekers, eagerly hoping to see Jesus perform some more sensational feats? Thus the Apostle John writes with a sense of irony, The Galileans' reception of Jesus was not genuine, but superficial and shallow, unquote. I'll receive Jesus, really. What does that mean? I'll go to church, I'll read my Bible, and I'll try and be a good person. I'll try and learn about Jesus. What kind of a Jesus is the real Jesus? Well, the real Jesus is the one that was predicted over 300 times in the Old Testament. The real Jesus was spoken of in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. This Jesus was prophesied about in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. This Jesus comes through time and space. He is born of a virgin. He's born without sin. He is born for one specific reason and one specific reason and that is to die for sin so that sin could be abolished so that people could be reconciled to God so that they could live forever well, I don't I don't believe in that kind of a Jesus well if you don't believe in that kind of a Jesus guess what you're not going to receive forgiveness of sin you're not going to receive reconciliation with the Father I want to receive Jesus well what kind of a Jesus do you want to receive I want to receive a Jesus who will allow me to continue to live the way that I live and think the way that I think and feel the way that I feel make me feel at least a little bit better about myself I want to believe in a Jesus that if I can take my kids into the Sunday school they'll get good moral values Really, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. You see, the evidence for faith in the Bible isn't that you just simply receive a miracle-working Jesus, an interesting Jesus, a provocative Jesus, but that you receive him as Lord and as Savior. One of the ways that you can rest assured that Jesus is the product of your imagination is if you reject the testimony that's given by God in the Bible, that he he is the unique son who came to the earth to die for sinners. Certainly, Jesus foretold his own death and resurrection in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. History bears testimony to an empty grave. That's what it says in Matthew 27, verse 62. Jesus was seen by over 500 people after he rose from the dead. The Bible presents a Jesus who understood his mission, his death and his resurrection, who will rise really from the grave and who will physically be alive in order to transform people's lives and hearts. And so perhaps the most powerful argument for the truth about Jesus 
is the truth that He changes people's lives for the one who loved Him and follow Him. And I mean change in a dramatic, in a profound way. Where the things that you used to love you now hate and the things that you now hate you used to love, you hate dishonoring Him. You used to love dishonoring Him. And now you hate it. A prophet is without honor in his own country. Well, where is your country, Jesus? The Galilee, Israel. I would like to think that this is Jesus' country. That when you walk through these doors and you come through that columnade and you sit in that seat, that this is a place where we will open God's word and we will honor him and not dishonor him. Where we will receive him and not reject him. Long ago, William Barclay argued, quote, It may be that sometimes we have to argue with people until the intellectual barriers which they have erected are battered down and the citadel of their mind capitulates. But in the great majority of cases, the only persuasion we can use is to say, I know what Jesus is like and I know what Jesus can do. All that I can ask you to do is to try him yourself and see what happens. What are you asking me to do? I'm asking you to receive the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the New Testament, the Jesus who loves you, the Jesus who's willing to forgive you, the the Jesus who's willing to give you a right relationship with God by grace, the Jesus who's willing to reconcile you to the Father, the Jesus who is willing to take you to heaven, the Jesus who is willing to keep you from hell. Well, I I don't believe in a Jesus that would send people to hell. I know. That's because you believe in a Jesus who you've invented. Because the Jesus of the New Testament says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. The Jesus of the New Testament says that hell was never supposed to be the place where human beings go. Jesus is the one who invented hell in order to isolate Satan and Satan's minions to keep a world in which there can be no sin. You might ask, well, why... That leads me to another question. Why, in the, If God's so smart, why would he make the devil? He didn't make the devil. He made Lucifer a perfect angel who was perfect in all of his ways, who in disobedience and re- rebellion made this, the decision to resist and then reject God. Just like he made you. He didn't make you to resist and to reject God. He made you to accept Him, to know Him and to love Him. C.S. Lewis in his masterful book, Mere Christianity, in perhaps the most quoted paragraph in the whole book, makes these, this statement, and I quote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must... 
take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Lewis was right. You can't be a great moral teacher and tell the world that you're the son of God who came from God to die for sins. I mean, it it might sound interesting coming from a world leader. Remember, imagine a former famous president saying, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to Hillary except by me. Or excuse me, comes to the Father except by me. See, you would believe the one but not the other. See, you laugh because of the absurdity of it all. But you don't laugh quite as loud when you see the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. You see eyes opening and deaf ears hearing. You hear about the dead coming back to life. If God really did come in the form of Jesus, wouldn't you expect him to be born under unusual circumstances? Wouldn't you expect that he would live the most incredible life that's ever been lived? And would you expect him to have power over death itself? My friend Lee Strobel has written a book entitled The Case for the Real Jesus. And in that book, he takes up six different challenges, challenges in our times to discredit and dishonor Jesus. He answers questions like, did scholars uncover a radically different Jesus in ancient documents just as credible as the four Gospels? Can the Bible's portrait of Jesus be trusted? Did the early church tamper with the text? Have new explanations refuted the resurrection of Jesus Were Christianity's beliefs plagiarized or copied from pagan religions? Was Jesus an imposter who failed messianic prophecies? Should people simply be free to pick and choose whatever they want to about Jesus? Well, we've already established that that's exactly what they do. They pick and choose what they want to believe. But but imagine how demeaning Imagine how dishonoring that would be if somebody treated you that way. You are what you believe. You are what I think you are. Is that really fair? Don't I owe it to you to at least take into consideration what you have to say about yourself? Don't you owe it to Jesus? to at least consider what he said about himself and what those closest to him said about him. Open up your Bible. That's the only source that you will find that will tell you the truth about the historical Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that sometimes we've lived lives of rebellion and disobedience. We've dishonored you. 
Sometimes we did it intentionally and sometimes we did it unintentionally. But Lord, we pray that Jesus would have honor in our hearts. Lord, we pray that Jesus would have honor in our lives. Lord, we we pray that one of the evidence of biblical faith is that we would honor him, but also that we would receive him. Not on terms of our own imagination, but on his terms. Lord, we've learned that Jesus said that he would receive any who would come to him and that he wouldn't cast them out. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who in their heart know that they've dishonored Jesus, but now is the time to honor him. Now is the time to believe in him. Now is the time to receive him. Now is the time to embrace the truth about him, that he loves you and that he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the dead for your justification and that you can have forgiveness and life and hope in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus isn't the kind of Jesus who will allow us to remain in our sin, who will allow us to remain in our rebellion and disobedience, but who will cause us to confess our sin, to turn from our sin and to embrace Jesus fully and finally as Lord and Savior, reconciling us to you. And Lord, I pray for that person who has such a deeply divided heart. They've lived a life of estrangement and sorrow, alienated from God and Christ. But Lord, now you're issuing an invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, I pray that they would allow Jesus to unburden them, that they would receive Jesus, believe Jesus, love Jesus, and follow Jesus. And if that's you, your heart is broken and empty, and it needs to be filled with the true and living Lord, just slip up your hand and I'll pray for you. You don't have to leave this place empty and alone dishonoring and discouraged but you can receive the real Jesus of the real Bible is that you? all you have to do is just cry out to him confess to him your need your willingness to turn from your sin and to receive him and honor him in Jesus name Let's stand. We stand and lift up our hands for the joy of the Lord is our strength. We bow down and worship Him now. Our rage, how awesome is He.
receive the living Lord Jesus, won't you? I'm going to be here after the service, available to talk with you and pray with you. There will be other men and women who will be available to talk with you and pray with you. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace as you honor and receive his son. In Jesus' name.